Um, we have uh, Ferris Hougere, who's going to speak to us um, for our product theater today. Please welcome Dr. Hougere. I'm sure right. I'm looking all <laughs> over here for you. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Faraz Hougere. I'm a dermatologist and a most surgeon in Atlanta. And uh, I am here to speak today about um, steroid dermatoses, steroid-responsive dermatoses, particularly about two products. This here is a product theater. You guys who have been to uh, SDPA meetings know that this is a pharmaceutical-sponsored talk. This is a pharmaceutical-sponsored uh, slide deck as well. Uh, if you have any questions at any time, please interrupt me. It's not really interruption. That's really what we want to do. Um, in the audience, who sees a lot of atopic derm here? Who sees a lot of everything? Who is mostly, who mostly sees a certain type of patient in their practice? One. That's good. I think as, as the years have progressed, a lot more uh, physician assistants and physician extenders see a little bit of everything. And I think that's the best way to do it. And atopic dermatitis um, is one of the things we see the most of. Okay. Thanks, my pleasure. Uh, so, speaking of dermatitis, again, this is a program that is sponsored by Promius Pharma. The two products we'll discuss are Promius Pharma products. Um, when we talk about inflammatory dermatoses, what we see a lot is atopic dermatitis. We see a lot of uh, allergy, mostly nickel allergy, and uh, we see also seborrheic dermatitis. Other dermatoses include psoriasis and other things as well. So, cloderm. Cloderm is a steroid that is indicated for the relief of inflammatory dermatoses uh, and periodic manifestation of corticoid-responsive dermatoses. What does this mean? It helps the dermatoses, and by the way, dermatoses is different than dermatitis. Uh, dermatitis is inflammation of the skin, dermatoses, all these inflammatory slash pruritic conditions. So, Cloderm is a mid-strength class 4 topical steroid. Uh, it is um, relatively safe, but it does have some potential side effects. The majority of side effects which we'll discuss uh, today have been more local uh, side effects, local treatment side effects. Um, of course, if you're allergic to Cloderm, you cannot use it, shouldn't use it. There is no age restriction on Cloderm. Anybody knows why? Has it been approved for kids? Yes, no? Who says yes? Who says no? Good. So, Cloderm and actually a other, some other steroids as well have been grandfathered in. These are steroids, these are products that have been around for a long, long time. Cloderm, I think, was first introduced in 1977. Has been used a lot on kids and adults for many years. So these got grandfathered in. So, um, no, Age restriction does not mean age indication. What does this mean for us as dermatologists or dermatology practitioners? It means that the insurance cannot tell you we will not approve this because it is not approved for under such. That will not happen. But you have to use the same caution that you use with any steroids when you use this on kids. On a small baby, there's a much higher chance of HPA axis suppression just because of the surface area versus what you apply. So use it with, with caution on small kids, but I've used it on anybody from a few days to uh, Medicare age, of course, if it gets approved. All right, 
So steroids, synthetic steroids have been used uh, since the 1950s. Initially, it's, it was something that was actually discovered in a root, almost like a yucca uh, root, uh, in uh, South America. And finally, they were able to synthesize it in the 1950s. Kendall and Hench at the Mayo Clinic put it all together. The basic steroid formula is this. I'm not going to do a lot of um, organic chemistry today. We'll do a little bit, however. This is the basic steroid, topical steroid formula. And when you look at this, you can, you can change it. You can change the um, uh, penetration. You can change the efficacy. You can change the strength of steroid by adding uh, things, by adding fluoride or chlorine agents. That's called halogenation. You can change other things by also esterifying this, adding another um, uh, substrate, another molecule at this area as well. And that has been discovered over the years, and many steroids actually were created from this basic formula. This is the basic formula of steroids. So when you look at clocortolone pivolate, which is cloderm, there are several differences between the initial molecule and this one. One, this one has a fluoride and chlorine atom here, and has a pivolate group right here. So when you're looking at the changes here, which is the C9 and C6 changes, as well as the esterification uh, right here, these have increased anti-inflammatory activity of the original steroid with hydrocortisone. They reduce the malar corticoid activity of the, uh, of the hydrocortisone, and they also enhance percutaneous absorption. The other thing they, they did is decrease the allergenicity of this uh, original molecule. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. So C9 chlorination, C6 fluorination is what they've added to clocortolone pivolate. And C21 esterification of the pivolate group is what also got added. Now, when you look at the methyl group right here, that is very important as well. This is a class C um, steroid from an allergenicity profile. It's a group C. Steroid. Now, group C steroids have two main steroids, and that's important. Group C steroids include desoxymethasone, that's a brand name Topicort, and clocortolone pivolate, which is a brand name Cloderm. Anybody can tell me what is specific about group C? What is different about group C steroids compared to group A, group B, the D1 or the D2 groups? Anybody has any idea? Go ahead. Hypoallergenic. Much less allergenicity. You're right. Anybody does patch testing in their groups? Do you patch test for steroids? Yes. Steroid allergenicity is actually relatively common, and we have to look out for it. Now, how do you look out for it? How do you find it? Usually, clinically, is when you get the suspicion, unless you did the patch test and, and you got lucky and found it. But if you have somebody with a dermatosis or dermatitis, which should be responsive to steroids, and two things happen, or one of two things happen. One, they don't get better. They tell you, put the steroid on, it gets worse. Keep it in the back of your head that about 5% plus of our patients are allergic to steroids. The other thing that could happen, you could give them the steroid cream and they get better, but then as soon as you stop it, they almost rebound. It's almost like they get much, much worse. When that happens, it doesn't mean that they're allergic to steroids, but keep that in mind as well, even if you give them prednisone. So the same thing happened with oral steroids. So given prednisone, they do great, and they come right back with a vengeance. Think about steroid allergenicity. And you have two options. One, you can patch test them. That's expensive. That's a pain in the neck sometimes. 
Two, you could try something different and see if it gets better. And that gives you your answer almost. If you switch them to group C, like cloderm, uh, or like doxymethadone, if you switch them to group C, that will give you an answer because that will change it. If you give it some time, it will change it. It'll get better and actually stay better, okay? Okay, so let's talk about the solubility of glucortone pivolate, of cloderm. By adding that pivolate group, this become, became much more fast soluble. How did they test it? To make it simple, they took, you know, um, they took a product with both water and a, a non-soluble product. They put the glucortone pivolate in it and then shook it, and then they see how, it, how much of it stayed in the uh, lipid-soluble uh, phase. And this did much, much better than any of the other steroids we usually use, much better than triamcinolone, uh, much better than, um, than fluticasone and other ones as well, okay? So it is much more lipid-soluble and much more available to our patients than some of the other products we use. Now, we talk about group C allergenicity. Again, steroids are classified according to their ability to cross-react. Um, Group C, because of C16 methyl substitution, is again a very, very, has very low allergenicity profile, meaning by very low, I'm not aware of actually any case studies or any case reports of allergenicity to group C. You cannot test for it or you don't test for it because we don't really see it. And as I discussed, this oxymethadone is the other one that we have. They are the only two group C. No other ones are group C uh, steroids, okay? So when you look at the allergy group classes, Again, you have group A, which is the highest allergenicity, and that includes hydrocortisone acetate. Uh, group B, desinide triamcinolone is also pretty high, and they cross-react with group uh, uh, D2. And D1 also has a lower allergenicity, but it's not, um, it's not as low as group C, and beta-methadone valerate is one of them. So when you look at cloderm ingredients, what does cloderm have? Again, it's a relatively old uh, product. It's been around for a long, long time. And it doesn't have much in it, and that's what I like about it, one of the things I like about it. So it has the active ingredient, then it has petrolatum as an emollient, mineral oil, sterile uh, alcohol, all these are emollients, purified water as a vehicle, and then has EDTA, carbomer, and does have methylparabens. But mostly, other than the active ingredients, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine ingredients other than the active one, three of which are petrolatum, mineral oil, and purified water. So really not that many things. And having trained in an area, I trained in the Mayo Clinic where, um, where we did a lot of patch testing, so my research on patch testing, having trained in an area where allergenicity is a high issue or something we studied a lot, having something that simple is good. Because try to read the products, some of the other products that we have. It makes things a lot more complicated. When a patient has an allergy, is it a steroid, is it not a steroid? It makes it very complicated. Any questions so far? Again, the other things this thing does not have, doesn't have lanolin, doesn't have propylene glycol, and doesn't have fragrance. All right. So what studies have been done for cloderm? There were studies with atopic dermatitis, other inflammatory dermatoses. There have been pediatric studies uh, and studies to have an HPA, to look at HPA axis suppression and long-term use for the safety profile. When you look at eczema studies, there are about six studies that were double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, and that had about 209 uh, patients in total. And they looked at the physician assessment and as well as symptomology at the end of the treatment. And what they had was people putting cloderm three times a day 
at day, and evaluate at day 0, 4, 7, and 14. And you can see that as early as day 4, you have a difference, a statistically significant difference between the cloderm cream group versus placebo group. At day 7, 56% did better with the cloderm group versus the placebo group. Again, a statistical significant difference. And then uh, day 14, continue to improve compared to placebo. How about adverse events? 3.4% um, patients reported dryness or irritation in the uh, cloderm group, and 10.4% rep reported dryness uh, or irritation in the um, uh, placebo group. No systemic effects. And really, about 560 patients have used cloderm uh, in all the studies for cloderm, and none of them really had a lot of uh, side effect profile or a lot of side effects. Again, all adverse reactions that were felt to be product specific were local site reactions. Cloderm was also studied or looked at for other inflammatory dermatoses, including psoriasis and contact dermatitis. And out of 50 patients, you had 44% uh, statistically. Uh, satisfactory clinical response was statistically significant um, versus 24% for placebo, 87% in contact dermatitis versus 15% uh, in placebo. And the p-value for both of these were in a statistically significant range. And you guys understand what the difference between statistically significant versus not, right? This is, I mean, I know it's easy, but when you look at numbers of studies, the absolute numbers don't mean a thing. The statistical significance, statistical relevance is more important. So you can give me something where placebo has 1% improvement, and product has 99% improvement. It's impressive number-wise, but if the, if there's, the p-value is higher than 0.05, then it doesn't mean much, because we don't have enough power really to show this. Um, you can have two products with, let's say, 60% improvement and 59% improvement between the uh, product and the placebo or the vehicle, and that makes more, more, of a, uh, more difference in our patients' lives if it is statistically significant. Because this means that it's been proven statistically that the odds of the difference, the odds of your patients doing better with the product will not be just by luck. That actually just will be consistent. Okay. Any questions so far? How about the HPA suppression? Anytime you deal with a steroid, whether by the way, mid-potency or high-potency, you have to think of HPA axis suppression. Why do you have to think of HPA axis suppression? Because it can happen. Um, I've seen patients with buffalo hump because they've used uh, topical treatments for a long, long time, given by primary care or dermatologists sometimes. Sometimes things fall through the cracks. People keep on getting refills for a long time. It can happen, so be on the lookout for it. So what did they do for this? They took 10 healthy male subjects, which are more likely college students because only college students would do this for some money. And you'll understand why in a second. So they took 10 healthy male subjects. They put them in a plastic sweatsuit to wear on the whole body for 21 days for 12 hours a day. And they asked them to put cloderm, a full tube, 60-gram tube, per day, and live in the sweatsuit for about 12 hours. They looked at them before, at 48 hours pre-test, and they looked at them five days during the study, and they also looked at them post-study. And they assessed the adrenal function using a 24-hour urinary uh, ketosteroids uh, assessment, and as well as plasma cortisol level. So 10 individuals, they put a heck of a lot of uh, cloderm on, 
every day, wrap it all with a nice wetsuit for about 12 hours, and do that for 21 days. So that's not the average way you deal with a patient. And looking at it, there was absolutely no evidence of any HPA axis suppression all, th all through the study for 21 days. Now, they did have some side effects, but uh, most side effects were related to the fact that you put them in a sauna for 12 hours a day. So you had patients who had uh, some abnormal um, laboratory values. You had a couple of guys have nausea, heartburn, indigestions, or feel tired. Uh, but again, most things that were seen, all things that were seen, were due to, have, to being put in a wetsuit for 12 hours. How about long-term use? How long can you use this thing? Again, remember, this is a steroid, so you always have to uh, use caution. Around the eyelids, use caution, don't use it long-term, because even hydrocortisone, or class uh, six, even seven uh, steroids over the counter, if you use them around the eyelid, you run the risk of glaucoma. So you always have to warn your patients. These are things that could be used uh, around the eyelids, should be used for a very short time. Now, you're talking to somebody who has no problem using clobetasol around the eyelids, when needed. I use it when needed, short periods of time. This is around the eyelids, and one thing can get in trouble if somebody keeps on using something, uh, even weak, for a long time, okay? So they looked at this, uh, a treatment uh, for about 20, I think 27 patients uh, for 16 weeks treatment. They looked at uh, what happened to them, but there were no systemic, cumulative, or delayed adverse events related to the study, even when used for up to seven months. Again, that doesn't mean use it for seven months. This means it's a relatively safe product. So looking at this and knowing this, this has been used on some patients. This is a picture from, uh, I think, looks like a Joe Baikowski patient, from my friend Joe Baikowski uh, in Pennsylvania, 33-year-old female patients who came with pruritic erythematous scaly and lichenified patches on the lateral aspects of the antecubital fossa. This, we see this all the time. Uh, she pretty much had flare of atopic dermatitis. She was very itchy, 10 out of 10. And he gave her a cloderm, which was put in uh, twice a day. Again, he put it even on the eyelids and face. And I'm okay with that. Just things need to be done cautiously. The eyelids and face for uh, once a day, twi sorry, twice daily for a week. She came back at a week. And that's pretty impressive. And more importantly, her itch went from 10 out of 10 to 2 out of 10. And you'll find this with this product, the itch gets relieved pretty fast. Because again, it is class four steroids, it is expected. So you now have a product with, which is class four, relatively strong, with a lot of the uh, potential strength and absorption that's happening because of where the fluorination and chlorination is happening, because of the pivolated group, but also has been shown to be relatively safe. So you're getting some of the strength um, and uh, without some of the major side effects you're thinking about, okay? Same thing here, another patient who had, um, who had an irritation here, uh, used for about uh, a week, had a week follow-up, again, two out of 10, and it was a thing, he was also 10 out of 10, I believe. Is it he or she? I don't know, looks like a he. Two out of 10 uh, with, um, with paratus, and he did quite well. And this is only cloderm twice a day. So in summary, it's a class four, steroid, so it's mid-potency. Uh, it has no age restriction. The insurance will not bug you. It is an, aller an allergy group C, which, which is important. You have to look at this uh, more 
uh, more than we actually do now, because we miss, I think, a lot of steroid allergy, because we don't look for it. Um, there is no generic alternative that always helps as well from in our, um, in our practice environment. And these are the tubes, the tube size that are available. Any questions about Cloderm? Any comments? Go ahead. Perioral dermatitis? Well, you can have steroid induced acne. And perioral dermatitis, you know, we, sometimes we think that fluorination in some products uh, can cause this. But again, fluorination, in and of itself, halogenation and fluorination almost sounds like a bad word, but it isn't. It really depends on where the halogen is. Um, what happens a lot with perioral dermatitis, what I think is more important than steroid induced, is, is that it is initially treated with a steroid. And what happens perioral dermatitis when you treat it with steroids? is that they get better, they get better fast, they love you for it. And then you try to take the steroid away. And what ends up happening, they get much worse. There's definitely a rebound. So let's say they have, they're right here, you give them the steroid, they go right here, they're very happy, you stop the steroid, they go right here. So what they're gonna do, because you gave them a tube that's gonna last them a year, by say you, meaning me too, because you put just a small amount, they're gonna put that steroid on right away. And it's gonna go back to this. And they're happy again. And then they stop, and they go back to here, and they're not happy. And you can tell them all you want, stop the steroid, they're going to keep on putting it. So there's a lot of hand-holding that happens with steroid-induced rebound of perioral dermatitis. You know, you bring them in, you explain to them, listen, you're not going to get any better. I do actually this kind of whole graph with my hand. Sometimes I even draw it to what's going to happen. I need to put you on an oral um, doxycycline, and it could be some antimicrobial as well, uh, because we're talking anti-inflammatory doxycycline. So I put them on that, and you have to wean them off that steroid. You can't stop cold turkey. They won't, they, won't, they won't stay with you because they get so much worse. So then instead of if you do it daily, you go every other day initially and then go slowly to every third day and then really wean them off, potentially also adding other topicals, all anti-inflammatory, that are not uh, steroidal. No, I do not. I, I don't think there's any proof that causes, that steroids cause perioral dermatitis proper. Any other questions? Go ahead, sir. The placebo, I mean, there are different studies, and the placebo actually, it was not a vehicle. So the placebo could have been just a, um, I think it was a, I don't know which one the placebo was exactly, but I think it was actually just a, a base cream with petrolatum base. Nothing really, nothing really major on there. But it was not a vehicle. As you see, most of the, these are very old studies, because everything is, you know, everything with Clodram is old. When you look at the studies that we do these days with any of the topicals, if you find one, let me know, because I don't think there's any study over the past probably five years where it's ingredient or product versus placebo. So it's product versus vehicle. You'll see that a lot. And a lot of the companies now spend a lot of money on their vehicle. And the vehicle itself has a lot of ingredients that could do things. Uh, but in this one, that was not the case. So it was not the vehicle. All right. So again, Cloderm is recommended and used for steroid-responsive uh, dermatoses. That, that include all these. A topic, I use it on a topic, I use it on um, 
contact, I use it even on psoriasis. I mean, I guess class four steroid, use it for anywhere where class four steroid is indicated and it works very well. Um, and understanding some of, the, some of the pluses of using this versus one of the other ones. All right, so the next phase is a little shorter, but we're gonna talk about uh, Promiseb. Have, have you guys, do you guys use Promiseb? Yeah, do you guys like it, not like it? I mean, when Promisep came out, it was one of those things where the results were great, but they couldn't and wouldn't tell people why it potentially worked. And that bothered a lot of people, me included. Because, you know, you, know, you have bad memories of, of skin cap or just clobetasol 0.05%. Now, I'm, one thing I didn't say about me, I actually grew up in France. So a lot of the, some of the products that come to the US are, a lot of them are products that have been used in Europe, at least ingredients have been used in Europe for many, many, many years. And some of the products used here, I have been using in Europe for many years. So there is an understanding about why it should work. But let's talk about uh, Promiseb and see what it has done, some of the studies that have been, that have been done on it. So Promiseb is, to summarize, some of the studies show that it was comparable to desonide cream in efficacy. So now we're talking that, about something that could use or could be used for um, seborrheic dermatitis, and has comparable efficacy uh, to a steroid, okay? Uh, it had both uh, demonstrated anti-inflammatory and antifungal properties. And the safety profile is good. As I tell my patients, I don't care how often you use it, don't eat it, might not taste good, but even then I won't be bothered too much. Um, and the safe, and of course, it could, the goal of it, the goal of any of these products uh, that are 510K devices, meaning that technically don't have an active ingredient. Um, the goal of them is to replace or limit some of the uses of steroids. If I can use this and use a lot less steroids, I'd be happy, right? So the studies we're gonna go over, the first one is a head-to-head -head comparison of Promiseb cream and Desonide cream. And this was done in about eight centers and centers that uh, are run by a lot of the people you already know. I don't know if any of them is coming here, but uh, all these guys have been in many, many studies. And the study that was done, that study they came up with, was a study of about uh, 77 patients with mild to moderate facial seborrheic dermatitis. They split them in two. There was one group that was Promiseb cream group and one group that was Desonide cream group. And they had them apply it uh, twice daily to the affected area for 28 days. Now, there's a caveat, caveat. At 14 days, if they saw them back at 14 days and they were clear, they stopped. Now, whether they were on Desonide or they were on Promiseb, if they were clear, they stopped the treatment. And they saw them again at day 28. So they evaluated them at day 14 and day 28, okay? Looked at the IGA, which is the Investigator Global Assessment. Um, and again, the number of patients that was first, uh, one of the things looked at, the number of patients who cleared at day 14 and at day 28. And um, they also looked at the erythema and the paritis and the scaling score. Anybody who was on something else for Sebderm, such as ketoconazole or other treatment, had to be off those treatments for 14 days before they get enrolled. Demographic-wise, 73% were male, 27% were female, 70% were white, 22% were black, and 8% were Hispanic, which is kind of what we see in our clinic. A lot of septerms are usually an older white male. The mean age is 52, and it went from 21 to 85 uh, years. Okay, and this is what happened. So this here is baseline. 
here. So there, baseline. And look at the lines separately for a minute. So Desenite at day 14 did very well. The group did very well, had a statistically significant um, improvement. And that continued all the way to day 28. So people who are on Desenite cream did well, and their um, sebderm improved. How about the green line, which is the people with Promiseb? They also did well. They did well at day 14 to statistical significance difference. So they improved enough to make it statistically significant, and they continued to do well at day 28. Not only did they do well uh, compared to baseline, but when you compare them to Desonite, there was no statistical significance. They did as well as the Desonite group. So now you're using Promiseb versus a steroid, and they both do just as well as each other, okay? And I looked at erythema as well. At day 14, again, and day 28, both groups did much better than baseline to a statistical significance difference. And when you compare both of them, there was also no statistically significant difference between desonide and uh, promiseb group, which is um, impressive compared to steroids, given that steroids actually shrinks blood vessels. That's how we look sometimes at steroid strength. Now, this is where the main difference happened. And this is what I see also in my practice. The people who cleared at day 14 stopped. So whether it's desonide or whether it was promiseb, if you came back, if you were a patient and you came back at day 14, you were clear, they said, okay, good, now don't use anything anymore. And they looked at them again at day 28. The promiseb group had 71% continued clearance. So these guys who stopped at day 14 were still clear at day 28. There was 71% of them that were still clear. Compared to steroids, which had only 14% clear at day 28. So um, that was the main difference. And that's, I think we saw this even before, look, before, even without knowing this, this study, you'd know that. Because you give them that tube, which was 30 gram before the promise of complete came out, and that tube would really last them six months plus. Because really, they used it a couple times a day initially, then they cleared, then they stopped. Or the way I had them do it is use it a couple times a day initially and then as needed, or just a couple of times a week just to be on the safe side, just to kind of keep things down. And they did very, very well with it. And no rebound whatsoever. The adverse events was also minimal um, between the two. They both did actually, both groups did actually okay with the adverse event profile. So now you had a non-steroidal product with compar comparable efficacy to a steroidal product with a much longer clearance um, and no rebound that can be done uh, that can be used. And um, from that standpoint, this is not a product you can give for long term without having to follow up, without having to worry about the um, ophthalmic potential of using steroid around the eye, because you know they put it all the way here. Um, and that really is what sold me. This is what really starts, okay, maybe I'll try it. And eventually when you try it, you have to see how your patients do. And I, my patient did very, very well with it. Is this something you guys have seen also, or? It's just a study thing. Yes, no? Who says yes? Who says no? No, no, it's three yes. Okay. Now, how about antifungal activity? Does this kill fungus or not? And why does it kill fungus? So they looked at the measure reduction of malassezia furfur in human volunteer. And what they volunteered, what they did, and by they, I mean uh, Leon. Leon Kursik did that. Um, had 10 volunteers. They used two target areas in the inner chest, the upper chest, sorry. Um, one treated side and one not treated side. And he tape stripped the areas. 
So he tape stripped them, and he did a culture initially at baseline, and both of them had quite a bit of malice of furfur. And then they treated them uh, with, uh, with promisep twice daily, and then at seven days, they did the tape strip again. Versus one side had no treatment, then did the tape strip again in seven days. And you can see that the treated side had 94% uh, reduction in malice for colonies. Now, the untreated side also had 49% reduction in malice for colonies. And when you ask why, why do we think this happened, two things come up. One, probably the tape stripping itself probably took quite a bit of them off. Plus, it's the same patients where you had the promise on one end and no treatment on the other. And we're, you know, certainly some things, you know, some promise that moved to the other area. But still, 94% kill rate, 94% reduction in colonies is very impressive. Another study about antifungal activity used guinea pigs. Now, they had four groups. Group one is a group I'm going to ignore. But the group one, pretty much, it took four guinea pigs, and they wanted to show that we could grow malachia fervor in guinea pigs. So these four poor fellows lost their lives just to show that you can grow malachia fervor in guinea pig. And don't ask me why they had to kill them. I asked two, and they can't figure out. But, and then they had group two, group three, and group four. Group two were the same guinea pigs, or different guinea pigs, that also had malachia fervor uh, grown on them, and they had no treatment. Group three was the positive control. The positive control was you had cyclopyrox in them, okay? So they were treated with cyclopyrox QD for three days. Group four was, were treated with um, Promiseb QD for three days. And they looked at cultures um, uh, and skin samples and colony counts on all of these, okay? So what happened? At day seven, the first group showed that you still had malaria furfur there, so that actually, if you infect them with it, then they will stay there. The malaria furfur will stay there. Group two is a group that was no treatment, and uh, at day 10 also had a high number of positive cultures, and group three, which is positive control, showed that cyclopyrox would kill malaria furfur on guinea pigs, and that was a positive control with zero out of eight positive cultures. But Promiseb group, also did the same thing. When we look at skin, uh, skin tissue cultures, you can really find any. And with agar plate cultures, also uh, negative. So Promisep cream killed malacidia furfur the same way as cyclopyrox did. So from both these studies, we can see that Promisep demonstrated antifungal activity against malacidia furfur. Okay. By the way, only three applications uh, for the guinea pigs. So three applications, like on day 10, and that killed uh, the colonies. And the picture is worth a thousand words. That's what we see in our, in our practice. That, I think, is also Joe Bikowski picture. But you can see here, typical septum patient. Uh, a lot of these guys would tell you I don't care about it, but a lot of them actually do. So ask them about it, because they don't come for this. They rarely come for this. But with now something where I don't have to tell them about steroids and how to apply it and not to apply it, and just give them something to just go. I bring that up a lot because, hey, by the way, you have some scaling here. Does it bother you? And usually have it here, or do you have more of it now that the winter is coming? Does it bother you? If they say no, say well, fine. If they say yes, now I give it. You know, there 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 are several types of diseases that we bring up or not bring up in our patients. They don't come for. They come for a full skin exam and they have onychomycosis. Most of us, me included, do not bring it up. 
unless you really want to now talk about liver enzymes and all this. So we kind of pass by. But there are now diseases that have treatment that is so simple and so safe that why not bring it up? It takes two minutes, not even. It takes 20 seconds to bring this up. By the time I brought this up, my nurse already knows what to type on the computer. They already have something already printed out. So this is something that actually makes quite a bit of a difference. And that tube lasts them so long, this is not something I get a lot of callbacks on. Here's another patient. Also, it doesn't really show too much, but there's quite a bit of scaling here and here. And you can see this at week one. This is week one of treatment, twice a day. And this guy now in my practice probably stopped using it for a while or uses it just a couple times a week. So how do you use Promiseb? How do I use Promiseb? I actually use it as first line. Uh, if somebody's really, really severe, you have to calm them down with a little bit of steroids. So I'm okay using steroids for a little bit and then switching to Promiseb long term as a maintenance therapy or a recurrent therapy. And if they need the steroids, put it back on. And I explain to the patient, this is a steroid, so I don't want you to use this too, too much. You know, once you're done with it, you're done with it. And this is not a steroid, use it as many times as you want if it's controlling it. Any questions about it? So again, this is a product that demonstrates the same efficacy as steroids, has antifungal activity, um, and does very well for our seborrheic dermatitis patients and makes my life a lot easier when it comes to sebderm treatment. Now, they came up recently with Promiseb Complete. And Promiseb Complete is a, um, is a combination of Promiseb and the scalp wash. Now, we've been asking for a wash with Promiseb ingredients for a long time. They finally came up with it. Now, it has 100 ml of the scalp wash. And how do I use this? The wash itself, by the way, is a body and scalp wash, not just a scalp wash. It's not a shampoo, it's a wash. I explain this to my patients, this is a wash. So when they use it, two to three times a week initially, just say, just, you know, massage your scalp with it, leave it for about 15 minutes, and you can wash it off if you want. Okay, I have patients who actually just leave it on, just put it on and just leave it on after shampooing. It's really also helpful for my patients with things on their chest. You know, you see these, these patients, you know, usually white, male, hairy, with quite a bit of scaling here. Just that scalp wash really does very, very well for these guys. So use that three times a week, and then afterwards use it as needed, and has been very, very helpful for me. Now the good thing also, it comes with one pack, because most of when they have this, they also have that. So when you give the script, you're really prescribing a Promisep cream, and the scalp wash comes with it. It is also fragrance-free. Um, and the other thing that's very important about it, who here is from the South? I've practiced in Arizona for a while. Now, Arizona is the Wild West. I love Arizona. And, but our patients, even in Scottsdale, our patients were patients who, you know, when they get older after a while, they just, you know, just want to get things done. They're kind of more, they're, they're different. Now, in the South, I have a patient. I'm going to take pictures of her. I always promise myself. Who has an, a rip-roaring allergy to her dye, to her blonde dye. The lady's 82. Swears up and down, doesn't dye her hair. And she's blonde like any of you guys. And I asked her, well, how do you, how are you still blonde like this? She said, well, I've always been blonde. And every now and then you see she in color and you see the roots. But all of a sudden I'm saying goes, these ladies do not mess around with their hair. They don't. They go there once a week to their hairdresser. They get their hair done. It's very, very important for these ladies. And the last thing I want to do, and I say that because I've done it, and I was, I was, had really angry older patient. And an angry older southern belle is not a person you want to have around you. I gave her an Azeroth shampoo, and she turned green. 
That was not fun. That was not a fun conversation I had with her. I think she'd have rather me cut off her finger than this. But all this to say that something very important about this that I really, really like is the fact that it does not discolor hair. And a lot of us, when we give Nazarol shampoo, me included, always forget to tell them, by the way, it may discolor your hair, especially for the lighter, uh, lighter hair color patients. Always remember to tell them that when you give them Nazarol shampoo. It could, not will, but could discolor your hair. If you use it and you have a pool in Arizona, you're increasing the odds by a lot. So this is a product do not that does not discolor hair, and that's something to consider as well. Any questions? Go ahead. Yes. Yes. So um, this would be off-label because it's not because again it's not an active ingredient. There are several things that there's a lot of anti-inflammatory ingredients in Promise. I mean, look at the back to see the ingredients. There's licorice extracts that are anti-inflammatory. Now, cyclopyrox olamine is cyclopyrox. One of the ingredients in Promiseb has been used in Europe for a long, long, long time, over the counter as well, for as almost an antifungal. It's a, it's a very close cousin to cyclopyrox olamine. So next time your rep comes in, ask to just look at the ingredients. If you ask them, they'll show you. But um, so there is an antifungal ingredient, there's a lot of anti-inflammatory ingredients as well in it. And when they first came in because of, because of regulation, they, because it doesn't have it's 510K, it doesn't have an inactive ingredient. They can't tell you what the active ingredient is. And there isn't really one active ingredient. There's, there's a multitude of products that do very, very well uh, in combination with each other that have been shown in other places as well to act as antifungals and inflammatories as well. Go ahead. Well, it depends. You know, medical devices are, are, an, interesting, um, are an interesting thing. I think. Over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of exodus of coverage from the insurances. Uh, if it's not covered, it's not covered. Now, the good thing about it, if it's a cash pay patient, this is not, will depend on the pharmacy. If they go to Walgreens, it will be. But this has not been an exorbitantly expensive product, even cash, for my patients in, uh, in Georgia. What mean, this means that if they really want something like this, you know, with the rebate cards that, that these guys give us, it makes it not too exorbitant knowing it's going to last them many, many months. Um, the coverage is a, is, a, is a whole different talk where it's really difficult. So if you have an insurance company who just will not cover any devices, you may have a hard time with it. Um, I've written a letter to one company um, waiting to see what happens. Really, the letter is pretty quick. Say, listen, I can give them this or a steroid. I'd rather give them this, and it's cheaper. Um, sometimes you can get them covered, but do you, where, do you, where do you practice? By the way, the question was about coverage. I don't know if you could hear it. Where, where do you practice? Where? Oh, yeah, forget it. <laughs> there are some states that are different. Um, Michigan, Minnesota, they're all, I mean, it's, you know, it's the way we practice these days. That's one of the things that actually helps me with Cloderm is that I'm not going to get the things that I get for things like uh, Pomarcolimus, which is, you know, they're not, they're not two yet. You can't use it for, you know, it's, 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 it's a difficult situation we're all in. Um, but. No tricks in Michigan. I don't know. I'll ask next time I'm in Michigan. I'm going to ask people to see, hey, how it works. But this is difficult. Michigan, Minnesota, Massachusetts, I think are tough for coverage, period. Any other questions? Concerns? I think there's food waiting for you, I believe. So thank you so much for having me here.